But this week, we're going to be looking at John chapter 8. Now, you will note at the the head of John chapter 8, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7 verse 53 to 8 verse 11. Well, that's that's a challenge. So I would argue that really that, that text probably shouldn't be preached because it's more likely not meant to be in the Bible. I'm aware of that. Challenge is, when I say that pastorally, you're going to be thinking, oh my gosh, how can we have any confidence in the Bible then? How do we know what's God's word, what isn't? How can we really know how to rely on God's word or not? And it's at that point that I spoke to Brendan and said, Brendan, I need you to do a message on this topic and serve the people of Sovereign Grace with this. Listen, you need to know as your pastor, it absolutely thrills me to know that, that Brendan and Mark are able to preach alongside me in this pulpit. That is such a blessing to know that they are faithful at God's word. And although they're still learning, just how kind of the Lord, what a provision from the Lord to us as a local church. So let's welcome Brendan up as he preaches to us today. Good morning. I think this is the point where you sort of take a deep breath and go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. No, no, seriously. Uh, but can I trust the Bible? Um, it's a really big issue, isn't it? And um, one of the things that I'm really hoping that uh, we'll be able to get out of today is not only to encourage you, but give you some resources. Um, by way of note, it's a big issue. People have obviously been talking about it for a long time, and I've got nothing original to say today. I've stolen from every person that I could possibly think of. So I've got some books here that we've got at the bookshop and that we've got in specifically uh, that you can take, you can give to friends that... Uh, might have questions, or for yourself, if this is a, a genuine question for you, can I, can I trust the Bible? Um, so I'll, I'll just show you a few books. There's just three that I want to recommend. The first one is by Tim Keller, The Reason for God. I'm going to be using a, a fair bit of his material this morning. It's just an excellent uh, apology for, for Christianity, an apologetic book. Um, it's so accessible. The arguments are witty. It's a great read. It's a New York Times number one bestseller as well, so recommend that. Um, the next book that I'd really encourage you, a slightly different angle, is a book by John Dixon, who actually, before becoming a rector, has a, a PhD in ancient history and used to teach at Macquarie University. It's called The Christ Files, How Historians Know What They Know About Jesus. This book is all about the Jesus of history, both in the New Testament and from other ancient writers. So that's in the bookshop as well, 15 bucks, real bargain. The last one that I just want to recommend to you before uh, we read the the passages I'm going to be preaching from today and pray uh, is a book by F.F. Bruce, the famous professor of theology at uh, Princeton University. And this is the New Testament documents. Are they reliable? He first wrote this in 1943. We're up to about the sixth edition. It still feels absolutely fresh. Um, This is all about the reliability of the New Testament. Can we trust that it's been handed down to us reliably? Well, this morning, contrary to your bulletins, I'm actually going to be uh, speaking a lot on the topic of can I trust the Bible, but really basing it around or referring to uh, two passages that I just want to read before we start out, both from the Gospel of Luke. So if you've got your Bibles there, if you can open to Luke chapter 1. And I'm going to read from Luke chapter 1, 1 to 4, and then chapter 24, 13 to 35. Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many 
have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished amongst us. Just as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, if you flick over to the end of Luke's Gospel, to Luke chapter 4, 24, sorry, and I'll be reading from verse 13, Luke 24, 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they still looking and and they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But, but, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, yes, and, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amaze us. I mean, they were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and, and found it just as these women had said. But him did, they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, 
the Lord has risen indeed and appeared to Simon. Then they told they told what had happened on the road and how it was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Lord, we come together this morning as your people and we want to thank you for your word. Your word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Lord, what a precious gift. And Lord, as we come to examine your Bible, your words, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us to see that your words are trustworthy and that they are true. And we pray this in the power of your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, trust. It's an important issue, isn't it? And when I was thinking about this week and thinking about the issue of trust, the first thing that came to my mind actually was um, an experience, a specific experience I had when I was in Indonesia. Um, I was living in Banda Aceh, as I've shared with you before, and we had a conference in Jakarta. It's about four hours flight from Aceh all the way down to Banda Aceh, uh, Aceh all the way down to Jakarta. And we had this conference down there, and my team leader, Elma, had booked flights for us to go down. Now, I need to give you a context about domestic air services in Indonesia. Garuda International. I don't know if that rings any alarm bells at all, Garuda. Um, 1997, a Garuda 737 crashed and killed all 234 people on board. Indonesia's worst air disaster in 1997. In 2002, one of Garuda's flights, one of the uh, engines caught fire and they had to make an emergency landing. Several people were injured and one of the flight attendants was killed. But probably the moment that would be most notable to most people here is 2007 when a flight uh, shortly after landing in Jakarta burst into flames and burnt to death 21 people on the flight and injured many, many others with horrific, horrific third-degree burns. That's Garuda. Now, if you're flying with Garuda in, in, in Indonesia, people will laugh. And they're not laughing like we might laugh. They're laughing because you have to understand that in Indonesia, Garuda is the best. And you must be rich if you're flying with Garuda. They laugh. <laughs> you must be loaded. How can you afford to fly with Garuda? Now, friends, I wasn't flying with Garuda. No, I was flying with Sri Rajaya Air, which is the cheapest service <laughs> in Indonesia. And when Elmer informed me that he had booked tickets to fly with Sri Rajaya, let me tell you, I was a little bit nervous. And uh, that flight, I was like, every little detail, like, I'm paying attention to, like, everything's, you know, any little turbulence, I'm just getting more and more panicked. I mean, my forearms, I think, got more workout than any CrossFit workout I've ever done, just like <laughs> gripping the seats, you know, so hard. But the point is, trust matters, doesn't it? Trust really matters. And when it comes to the text of Scripture, it particularly matters because it affects your relationship with God. I mean, if you can't trust the Bible, it makes it impossible to trust the character of God which we read about in Scripture, doesn't it? Trust really is important. And so this morning, um, I'm going to be using a PowerPoint presentation to help you guys follow. It's not the normal way we do things, but I've got three points that really I want to address. 
I'm going to spend nearly all of my time addressing the first point historically. Can we trust the Bible historically? But I also want to talk about two other points briefly at the end, and that is, can we trust the Bible culturally and can we trust the Bible personally? Well, point number one, can you trust the Bible historically? As we look at this point, I actually want to look at two standard objections that I hear people saying all the time um, and address them specifically. The first objection that I hear people bringing up all the time is, you can't trust the Bible because they're simply made up. The things that you read in the Bible simply did not happen. They're just stories that some person or people have made up. They're not true. And there's recent things that have popularized this, haven't they? I remember, uh, you might be familiar with Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. And the premise of The Da Vinci Code was that uh, Jesus is just the widely misunderstood lover of Mary Magdalene. And that the true gospel is in fact the gospel that we find in the Gnostic Gospels, which have been suppressed by the church. Now, we're going to talk a bit more about the Gnostic Gospels later on, because I think the Gnostic Gospels are great, because they're great evidence of what it looks like when you try to make a gospel up. Um, So I want to come back to that and refer to that. But some people have the objection that simply it was made up. Were the Gospels made up? Are they historically reliable? And I want to present to you four pieces of evidence this morning that I think really speak and address this. The first one that we could talk about is external evidence for the life of Jesus. Um, And I want to say we can know much about the life of Jesus just from people in history, outside of the Bible. Even if we didn't have the New Testament, we can know a lot about Jesus. I don't want to really spend a lot of time talking about this. I just want to list it as a point. John Dixon, in that book that I showed you before, The Christ Files, if you have friends that have this as a legitimate question, let me encourage you to give it to them. He lists about 30 different things that we can know about the life of Jesus, that he was a miracle worker, um, his name and where he lived, his followers, that he was crucified, a whole big massive list from people that are just non-Christians living around the time, like Suetonius and Tacitus and Pliny the Younger and Josephus. If that's a question of friends that you have, let me encourage you to buy that book. Um, but that's the first evidence, external evidence for the life of Jesus. The second piece of evidence um, that I now want to move and spend more of the time discussing is the genre, just the type of writing that it is in itself. And you might not have ever considered this before, but if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, open them up to Luke chapter 1. And I want to read a little bit for you. Luke chapter 1. Verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished amongst us. Many have undertaken. So Luke, at the start of his first letter to Theophilus, Luke, that physician, that famous physician, He's saying that there's many people that have undertaken to compile narratives. So he's already saying at the start of the letter, there's other histories of Jesus that have been written already amongst at, at that time that he's writing. Accomplished. It actually, the word is fulfilled. Things that have been fulfilled amongst us. So the things that he's going to be writing about are part of a bigger story that's going on. They're things that have been fulfilled, things that were spoken of earlier. Read on verse 2. 
just as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So notice what he says, as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses. So at the, at the very beginning, Luke himself is saying there are eyewitness accounts involved in what I'm saying, but he's also saying I myself am not an eyewitness. So he's very careful to delineate between the eyewitness accounts that he's using to put together his narrative and his own personal experience. Followed closely, it says in verse 3, all things closely to write an orderly account. So Luke is someone who's looking on and he's trying to put together an orderly account, things in chronological order as they happened. But if we read on in verse 4, that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So he's putting them together in chronological order, in an orderly account, but he's also doing it purposefully, isn't he? He's doing it for a purpose. That is, that Theophilus might have certainty, that he might know for sure that the things he has been taught actually happened. Now, you might be wondering, like, what's, where are you going with this, Brendan? Well, the point I want to make is that what we're reading here is actually historical reporting. And you might say, well, yeah, yeah, that's, that's fair enough, Brendan, but, you know, I read you know, these fictional books all the time. I read, I read books that are really, you know, realistic about things that happened in, in the past. But the issue with that is, is that as a genre, as a type of writing... Realistic, historical, novelistic, if you like, fiction is a modern invention. Only since around the 17th century has this even existed. It's a modern thing. If you read ancient writings, ancient uh, fiction, it's like epic. It's like, you know, it's like Beowulf or Homer's the Iliad. It's like, then I lifted my mighty hand and I slew him. And we went to the mighty Theodore and slew him also. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like Maxilius Brutus, whatever his name is, from the Gladiator. It's not with all this tiny historical detail. This leads uh, C.S. Lewis, who you might know him from the Narnia Chronicles that he writes, but also who was the professor of medieval and Renaissance English at Oxford University, to write, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. Either this is historical report writing, what we read in the New Testament, or someone has suddenly appeared in history with a a technique, a style of writing that wouldn't appear for another 16 to 1700 years and then suddenly vanished again. A little bit difficult to believe the latter, isn't it? It's explicitly listed as an historical account. I mean, there's other things that we could point to in the Gospels. For instance, you know, in Mark 
chapter 4, we get all these little details of things and events that occurred. Mark chapter 4, Jesus is sleeping on a cushion in a boat, specifically lists that he's sleeping on a cushion. You wouldn't get that. In, in Luke chapter 2, the birth of Jesus occurs at a specific event in time. It's during the census of Quirinius, the governor of Syria. These, this is historical writing. In John chapter 21, when we finally get to the end of John's gospel, Peter, when he sees the risen Lord, jumps off the boat, swims through the sea, and they catch together specifically 153 fish. These are the tiny incidental pieces of information of historical writing. But more than that, it's brutally, brutally honest. I mean, it contains things you wouldn't make up in a myth at all. I mean, the first thing to think about is women as witnesses. The first people who see the risen Christ are women. But the problem with that is, in the ancient world, women as witnesses couldn't even be used in a court of law because the the witness of a woman was worth nothing. If you were going to make up a story, you wouldn't use women as your first witnesses, would you? I mean, Peter, who will go on to be the pillar of of the church. I mean, he does some pretty embarrassing things. In Mark 8:31, Jesus says, "Get behind me, Satan." I mean, um, later on, Jesus says to him, "You're going to betray me three times." The pillar of the church? That's an embarrassing plight. I mean, more than that, the things that Jesus says are difficult. In the garden of Gethsemane, he says, "Lord, pass this cup from me." On the cross, he says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? I mean, we know this side of the cross, what that means. But for all accounts, that looks like a tragic figure. That looks like a defeated king. You just wouldn't make that up. The genre is report writing. It's historical narrative. So the Bible is trustworthy. Evidence number three, the time of writing. Well, we can date the Gospels actually fairly accurately. And F.F. Bruce in his book writes that probably the Gospels or most of the New Testament, in fact, was written by somewhere between 60 and 80 AD. That's between 30 and 50 years after Jesus died. And how do do we know this? How do we know these facts? It's because many of the early church fathers will quote them. And the early church fathers lived from about AD 90 to AD 120, 150. And these guys are quoting the Gospels. Therefore, if they're quoting the Gospels, the Gospels must already be in circulation. In addition to that, they use the timing of the destruction of the temple as one of the key ways in which they can tell. But the issue with an early date is is that an early date for the writing of the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, means that they were written in the lifetime of eyewitnesses. And that is so important. I mean, think about it this way. If you tried to make up a history of World War II today, do you think you would have much success? I don't think you would. Why? Well, I mean, aside from the fact that we have the internet and so much recorded documentation about what, what actually happened, there are people that are still alive to this day that were in the war that can look you in the face and saying, what you say about the war simply did not happen. Why? I was there. 
So if the, the, the Gospels were written as early as we know they are written and were in circulation 30 to 50 years at the latest after the death of Jesus, I mean, there are witnesses that are alive during that time that could just say, this isn't true, this simply is not true. And in fact, people in the New Testament openly openly encourage people to turn to witnesses to affirm the testimony as being true. In Acts 26, Paul before King Agrippa says, look, this wasn't done in a corner. Come and talk to the other people that have seen the things about Jesus. In 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-7, he's talking about the gospel and he says, look, this is the gospel I preached to you. If you don't believe me, there's 500 people who saw Jesus risen as well. Go and ask them. This brings me to the big difference between the Gospels we have and the Gnostic Gospels. The Gospel of Thomas is the earliest of the Gnostic Gospels and a generous date for the date of writing of the Gospel of Thomas, a generous date is 175 AD, 150 years after Jesus died. And this, friends, is the reason why no one who studies the life of Jesus takes them seriously. Well, evidence number four, the content of writing. I'm talking about the actual stuff that is written in the New Testament, the actual information. Um, On this slide that you've got coming up here is um, names of the most popular names of people in Palestine in the first century. Now, the Bible's full of names, but the issue is if you're trying to make something up Making up names is really, really difficult to do. We now have access to information about what the top names were of the period. Uh, An Israeli scholar in the year 2002 put together this big, big information database by looking at all these historical records and writings and things recorded, getting every name of a Jewish man that he could find in the wider region and putting it together and listing them in, in their chronological order. Here you can see the top names of first century Palestine for that period. Now, this is really hard to make up. Why is it hard to make up? Because if you move to a slightly different location, the names change. If you move to a slightly different time when Jerusalem is destroyed and the Romans kick all the Jews out, the most popular names change. You need to know the time. You need to know the place to get this right. If we move to the next slide, just by crossing the border the names look completely different. I mean, how many of you, you guys here today know anyone called Sabbatius? I mean, it's just not a common name, is it? But just a small distance over the border, the names of people are completely different. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. If you compile a list of the names of the people, the most popular names of the people in the New Testament, here's what you get. That's back to Jewish Palestine and in the Bible. It's nearly exactly the same. Simon, let's take Simon as an example. Simon is, like it is for the period, the most common name in the Bible. That's why we get all these little things people have to add on the end of the name so you know what on earth, which Simon you're actually talking about. So you get Simon the leper. So you get Simon of Cyrene. So you get Simon of Cana. So you get Simon of Peter. So you get Simon the Tanner. All of these Simons, if you just said Simon... It'll be like, yeah, Simon, yeah, great. Which Simon? John the Baptist. Why is he called John the Baptist? Because 
John is a really, really common name of the period. If you just said, oh, the stuff that John said about Jesus, people would be like, which John? So here's John the Baptist. This, friends, is really hard information to forge. You just couldn't make it up. How do you account for this if it was written later? It's, it's more than just names, though. It's names of specific locations and places that are specific in the gospel. This is the information of someone who's intimately familiar, not only with the people, but the place as well. Someone who has lived there of, in the period. Capernaum, Nazareth, Bethany, Cana, Galilee. Details of the cities, the Skull Hill, the Mount of Olives. The pool with the five roof colonnades next to the sheep gate. Specific information. And this is what's so great um, when you compare this to the Gnostics. I mean, if you were going to make something up, right, how would you go about doing it? Well, you'd go to your local library and you'd get out your book on Israel and you'd flick through and try and find some information. What would you find? Well, you'd find the touristy places where everyone wants to go on holidays or has been on holidays. Um, like Jerusalem, for instance. But you're not going to find Nazareth or like Cana or any of these tiny little places. You know, you're not going to find them at all. Why? Because no one's heard of them. And even if they'd heard of them, who wants to go there? Um, and this is exactly what you get in the Gnostics. You know, in all of the Gnostics, they only get right two names. The first name is Jerusalem. It's the capital. The second name is Nazareth. Now, wait, there's a problem, though, because... The Gospels in the, in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, I think it is, that lists Nazareth, they actually don't realize Nazareth is the name of a place. They actually think it's Jesus' middle name, which is a problem. Um, yeah, it's a real problem. So this leads the noted historian, as we mentioned earlier, John Dixon, to write, I realize it does not make for a good headline, but in the ongoing study of Jesus, the texts at the center of historical research are still the New Testament Gospels. They are the earliest, most plentiful, and most reliable accounts of Jesus' life available to us. The Gnostic Gospels, on the other hand, are fascinating but virtually worthless in the search for the man who lived a century or two before. And again, in fact, it is no exaggeration to say that historians, no matter what their persuasion universally regard the New Testament writings as the earliest, most plentiful, and most reliable sources of information about the Jesus of history. The stories of the Bible were not made up, but are deeply grounded in history. Objection number two. The Bible is corrupted. So some people will say, if I accept the Bible as rooted in history, how can I have confidence that the original documents haven't changed. And in order to deal with this issue, this question, I want to look at manuscript evidence. Now, if we look at this next slide, you'll see a picture of a guy come up who you may have heard of. This guy is Julius Caesar. Now, I'm sure you've heard of Julius Caesar because you're taught it at school. You're taught all about him at school. But what you might not have been taught is the sources of information for Julius's life. Now, there's three main sources of information that we get to know about Julius Caesar. The first one is something that he wrote called The Gallic Wars. The second two are by a famous ancient historian called Tacitus. 
Now, how many manuscripts might you expect of each of those documents? Well, for the Gallic War by Caesar, we have ten manuscripts, two that are actually uh, in terrible condition. The oldest is about 900 years after he wrote it. 900-year gap is the oldest of the manuscripts uh, for the Gallic War. For Tacitus's works, uh, both of these works actually depend on just two manuscripts, as in there's two manuscripts in which both of those works are contained. One from the 9th century and the other from the 11th century. That's a big gap. We're talking about a thousand years difference. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, if we look at just the Greek documents, we have something in the magnitude of 5,800. But it's not only the Greek documents, we also have Latin, 10,000 documents. But our documents just aren't more plentiful. They're also much older and much more reliable in addition. Now, before I show you this next slide, I just want to say um, I worked really hard to try and put this in a table and get like the scale right, but it didn't seem to work out. Like No matter how I did it, all the others just ended up at naught. But I, I hope you find that helpful as trying to get a picture of what I'm talking about here. Um, and that's the key point. It's not only that we have heaps more documents, but also the documents we have are older and more reliable. Moving through to this next slide, I just want to show you a few examples. This is a document called P52. It's the oldest uh, document or section of a document from the New Testament that we have. It's a section of the Gospel of John. It's written at and dated at 125 AD. So that is, depending on how you date John, somewhere between 25 years and 45 years after the original manuscript was written. That is not very long at all. The next slide is of a monastery at the base of Mount Sinai. And you might be thinking, what's the point of showing me a monastery from Mount Sinai? A very, very important discovery was made here in the 19th century, which you'll see on the next slide. This is the oldest near-complete Bible that we have, called Sinaiticus, or the thing from Sinai. Um, Not very creative name. Um, It's dated at... 330 roughly AD, 300 years after Jesus' death, we have a copy of a near complete Bible, New Testament and Old. I mean, it's amazing. The documents that we have are not just more numerous, but um, they're also more reliable and much older. Yet nothing significant has changed. In this next slide, you'll see a picture of the King James Bible, written in 1611. Now, if you compare your King James Bible to your ESV, you're not going to notice much difference. But what you might not know is that the King James Bible was based on a work by this kind of depressing-looking guy called Erasmus. Now, Erasmus was one of the most famous um, Greek scholars of his day, and he lived uh, in, the late, uh, in the late 1500s. Uh, sorry, the early 1500s, late 1400s. And Erasmus got together seven manuscripts, old Greek manuscripts, and put together his Textus Receptus, which is, was this amazing revelation, the Greek New Testament for the first time since the early church, based on seven manuscripts, only seven manuscripts. And that was used to put together the, mainly used to put together the King James Version of the Bible. 
But as I've said, if you compare the King James Version of the Bible to, say, your average pew Bible, like an ESV, you notice hardly any difference. I mean, King James is a bit old ye English, you know, like he, ye, he, ye, thee, thou. But essentially the same. What's the point? Is that now we have nearly, literally nearly a thousand times more manuscripts, older, more reliable manuscripts, and yet the text of the Bible hasn't changed. The point is we have a much higher degree of certainty that what we have is accurate and reliable. More information, more certainty. Well, what then do we do with those two classic major passages? John 7.53 to 8.11, the one that obviously is the the, uh, reason behind this message, and the end of Mark's Gospel. The first thing I want to say is that this is not a new issue. Uh, This has been discussed for more than 500 years. The next guy you're going to see in the photo coming up, or that you already see, is John Calvin. Now, John Calvin was born in 1509, and he did not believe that the passage from both, or both these passages were in the original Gospels. How did he know this? Well, based on the, the seven manuscripts that he had, also because they used like different words in the Gospels from the rest of the Gospel. Also, because the early church fathers, when they talk about these passages or when they're quoting scripture, they, in the case of John, skip straight over it from 752 all the way through to 812. And what this does is it leads John to write this quote, which I'm going to put up on the screen. It says, It is quite clear that this story was unknown to the ancient Greek churches, hence some conjecture that it was inserted from another place. But it has always been received by the Latin churches and it is found in many Greek manuscripts and contains nothing unworthy of the apostolic spirit, so there's no reason why we should refuse to make use of it. So Kevin's attitude 500 years ago is this. It's, well, we know it wasn't, you know, original to the, to the, to the gospel, but, hey, it goes with the apostolic vibe and, you know, people have been making use of it for a long time, so don't be worried about it. Feel free to use it in your churches. You know, we shouldn't be ashamed or, you know, embarrassed about this. Don't freak out. That's Calvin's attitude 500 years ago. The point is that it's an old issue and now, since Calvin's time, having a thousand times more manuscripts, we have much greater confidence that, yeah, you know what? Calvin was exactly right. He was onto something. It has confirmed our initial suspicions. But I want to say that this doesn't mean that actually the stories, which are great accounts that we read in sections like in John's Gospel, for instance, are not true. It doesn't mean that. In fact, there's many reasons to believe that they are, in fact, true stories. The point is that these true records were not initially in the Gospel as John wrote it, and therefore they're not scripture for us. They're not binding to us. They might have some helpful things that we can learn from, but we don't treat them as scripture. In addition, it's important to recognize that they don't contain any truths about Jesus, any of these passages that we can't find elsewhere in our Bibles. And this is really important because that's the reality of all the tiny variances that we find in our Bibles. None of them affect any major doctrine or any important historical event. So in the sheer abundance of manuscript evidence, we can have confidence that the Bible has not been corrupted. 
So, in summary, we can trust the Bible historically in that it is rooted in actual history and two, it has been reliably passed down to us over the millennia. Well, point number two, and briefly, you can trust the Bible culturally. So the question arises, you know, if all of this is true, if I can trust um, that the Bible is historical, can I trust it culturally? I mean, isn't it full of all these musty old stories, you know, that are written to ancients, you know, thousands of years ago and have got nothing to say to me, old values, old principles, can I trust it here and now? Well, I want us to remember back to that second passage that I read from Luke chapter 24. And if you can remember what happened in that passage, it's Jesus has been crucified, he's, he's died, and his disciples are travelling on the road to Emmaus. They're travelling to, to, to go to Emmaus to meet up with other disciples. And they're devastated. Why are they devastated? Well, because they thought that Jesus was going to be like this awesome king that was going to come and just whoop some Roman, you know, ass. He was going to come in there and, was going to, and he was going to just destroy the Romans and it was going to be mad and he was going to be like, and they were going to be like positioning themselves, you know, left and right and it was just going to be awesome. This is this Messiah, the promised king, he's come back again. You know, they were just really pumped about Jesus coming back. But you see the problem? They had let their cultural expectations of who Jesus is cloud their judgment. Their cultural blinders had prevented them from seeing the real Christ. And Jesus, you know, it would be great to have been there. The risen Christ comes back and meets them and explains them from Scripture. Hey guys, look, look, this is who I am. This is who I am. Don't you know? Don't you know that the Christ had to suffer and die? Don't you know that my life was in fulfillment of Scripture? Jesus comes back and he corrects their cultural, their cultural blinders, their cultural misunderstanding. And so if you're sitting there today and you're thinking, can I trust the Bible culturally? And maybe you've misunderstood what the Bible is about. Maybe you're culturally blinkered. I mean, think about our society, our culture, and what our culture loves. We love in the Bible, we love generosity, we love turning the other cheek, we love forgiveness in the Gospels. We love that. Our society loves that. But we hate the teaching on sexual immorality. We hate it. We think it's prudish and old-fashioned. But how is it that if you get in a plane and you fly to the Middle East, the situation is exactly the opposite? They hate the teaching on forgiveness and turning the other cheek. They hate it. But they love the teaching on sexual immorality. Why are people's thinking, is people's thinking so different? Different cultural expectations. Different cultural values. Don't allow your cultural presuppositions to prevent you from examining Christ. The real key issue when it comes to the Bible is, is Jesus who he says he is? If Christ really is God and was raised from the dead, you know, he's allowed to offend your cultural sensitivities, sensibilities. If he really is God, he's allowed to offend you. And in fact, if God could never speak his mind, if God could only ever speak what we wanted him to say, I would have every reason to believe that is not God, but that is a creation of my imagination. 
You can trust the Bible culturally, but by, begin by examining Christ. Well, point number three, you can trust the Bible personally. I've got a quote up here by Richard Dawkins, which I want to read for you. Richard Dawkins writes, Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate the evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, sometimes because of, the lack of evidence. And I want to say, I completely agree. The faith that Richard Dawkins is describing is a complete cop-out. The problem is, the faith that Richard is describing is not the faith of the Bible. Biblically speaking, faith is about trust in a relationship. You know, the Bible says that God made the heavens and the earth. He made everything in them. And it was good. But we turned our backs on God and rejected God even though he said, reject me and you will die. We wandered from God, we rejected him, and the world has ever since been corrupted. But God, in his love and mercy, wasn't prepared to let us perish in our sin. He came after us. Time and time again, he came after people, men of faith, calling them to repentance, calling them back to him. And in the last days, he sent his precious Beloved, one and only son, to die on a cross for your sins, that if you would just put your trust in him, you could be made right with God. Faith is about trust in a relationship. Faith is about trust in the person of Christ, his work and his ability to save you. And therefore, I think there are two sources of evidence for trusting in Christ personally. The first one is history past. It's the things we've been talking about already. And the second one is history present. And that's the work he continues to do as he saves and changes people to this day. And there are limitless testimonies here in this church, isn't there, of people changed by the gospel. And so I wanted to finish by sharing my story of how the Lord has changed me. And, you know, to be honest... Um, in many ways I've been blessed growing up in a Christian family and uh, a family that knows and loves Christ for the most part at least and I knew all the stories about God but for me to personally trust in Christ has been a long story of grace I can remember being at high school and just being being deeply anxious about what people think of me I know I know Kids at school often feel anxious about what people think of them. But for me, I just, I just used to feel deeply anxious. It's embarrassing to say, but um, I used to always get like busted, like you know, checking my hair in car windows and things. And I was paralyzed by fear of what people th- thought of me, so afraid of what people thought. It was, it was paralyzing. And so by this, because of this deep anxiety and wanting to be loved by people, wanting to be accepted by people, I can remember at school hanging out with the cool crowd, the wrong crowd, and starting to get more involved in parties and things. But on Sundays, going to church with my parents in a small church in Wollongong where I was deeply ashamed. I wouldn't even have confidence to tell my friends I was going to church. I was so ashamed. 
And I can remember one day sitting in class and the teacher, Mr. Panazza, is writing on the board with his Italian moustache and his shorts, his socks pulled up and his short shorts. And there's this girl sitting at the front of the class and she's just minding her own business. And that day, for some reason, I don't know why, we decided we're going to tease her, me and all the other guys in the back of the class. And we're teasing her about that day, for some reason, being a Christian. And we're teasing her and I don't know what the joke is. Like, ha ha, you're a Christian, ha ha ha. It's not very funny, like, thinking back on it, but that's what we were doing. And that day... She turned around and she looked at me and she said to me, don't you laugh. I believe that. I can remember in that moment, even though she was in fact speaking to all the people I was with, I felt like she was just looking at me. And I realized in that moment I had to make a decision. I couldn't rest in my parents' faith. I can't just go along to church and say I'm a Christian and not put trust in Christ for myself. I have to make a decision about where my trust will lie. And since that day, it's been such a joy for me to know that in Christ I am accepted. Regardless of my weaknesses, he loves me. He died for me. I am part of a great story of God's work in this world. And if that's you, if you have never put your trust in Christ personally, let me encourage you to come and speak to someone right after this service. Well, in summary, you can trust the Bible historically, you can trust the Bible culturally, and you can trust the Bible personally. Let's pray. Lord God, I I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have entrusted to us a trustworthy word. Lord, that you have presented to us the words of life preserved in their fullness that we might know and love and trust in you. Oh, thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus, who came and died for us. What a What a gift of your kindness. Lord, I pray for these folks here. I pray that people with doubts and questions might be reassured this morning by your word, might leave with confidence that your word is a trustworthy word. Lord, I also pray for people here who have never trusted in Christ. I pray that by your grace, they would lead you, you would lead them to trust in you. I praise in Jesus' name.